0: sought after for their success, and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor.
1: Welcome back, I'm Tom Lloyd. Today we're gonna discuss the super rich the how and why of their investment interests. Preserving wealth is very different from creating it. What are their goals? What are their secrets? And for the entrepreneur, how can you tap into this pot of gold? My interest in this class of investors comes from my experience as an entrepreneur over the last 45 years, including healthcare companies and building them from scratch. Creating a vision, building strong teams, developing plans and budgets to support, Precision execution are keys to success, but it cannot be done without capital. There was a sea change in the development stage company investment landscape about 10 years ago, as I noticed many family offices not only investing through focused venture funds, but also making direct investments. And this is the topic I will explore today with an expert in the field, Salvatore mushemi who is the CEO and co-founder of Dandrew Partners? Who is the CEO and co-founder of Dandrew Partners, a private family investment firm? He is author of Making the Yield, Real Estate Hard Money Lending Uncovered, and Raising Real Money, Real Estate Funds Uncovered, in his most recent book, Investing Legacy: How the 1000th Percent Invest. Let's get started with Salvatore. Thank you for joining us. We'll get started with a couple of questions. Um, what about thank the- you for having me. Well, great to have you. Uh, When you look at the investment capital that's out there, give me an idea of where the family office fits in terms of uh, the total amount of capital that's out there and how much they invest each year.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Bloomberg came out with an article not too long ago that stated about 440 billion has been allocated this year into that space and it's doubled over the past decade. So these families are definitely making a discernible impact into earlier stage companies, what we used to call venture capital, you know, angel investing, all of that, they're taking much more prominence. And, and, and they're actually um, exercising a lot of strength and influence to be able to bring a lot of these companies up a little more than financial, of course.
1: And just exactly what is a family office? How is it organized? Who runs it? What is it? I know they're multifamily offices, single family offices.
2: Yeah. So that's a good question. There's two types of family offices. Today, you're seeing more emerging family offices, which are the kinds who are just what we call the nouveau riche. And these are people who have had an exit, they've sold a company or they have come into their own, and they have a different identity that they want to follow. And we quantify this with anyone with $100 million in assets and above. That's the way we look at it, because there's an expense to manage that money much like a yacht, you have to make sure they have the accounting set up and everything is you know, all the T's are crossed and the, the I's are dotted. So there is an expense to, you know, steward that amount of capital. And a lot of these families operate, um, if they're established, they have their own CIOs and they have people who have been through the uh, legacies who have developed, went to business school, and they are eagerly a part of the business. And that's what the operating families look for. The emerging families today are sort of, they don't know what they're doing yet. They sort of, can't really figure it out. They're facing a lot of shiny objects. They don't have the operational infrastructure that an established family office, say like a Rockefeller would have. So what you're starting to see now is an amalgamation of these platforms where many wealthy families come together who are what I call best in class in each of their respective industries, but coming together because there's a lot of trust and there's a value system that follows. Because today what's following uh, these cabals of wealth is the Um, more of a societal based investing mentality where people are looking to allocate based on alignment of values and alignment of interests.
1: And with regards to their investing, and we'll get into greater detail on that. How does a family office differ from an institutional fund, a venture fund in terms of their approach?
2: The approach for a lot of these families is if they follow the if they toe the party line, which means if that is an industrial company, they're going to be much more willing to invest into uh, other types of burgeoning types of industrial companies or companies that are going to be beneficiaries of anything that they have a um, a stronghold as far as, you know, intellectual capital or insider knowledge in their industry, not in a nefarious way as far as trading stocks, but at least they know who to get to in the industry in order to build the next big thing, whatever it is. So that's sort of like the silo that you see or the insularness in a lot of these families. And today, a lot of these families will only look at opportunities like that. But in order to talk to these families, it's not much different than an institution, but I'll tell you the institutions I stopped working with in 2013 and the reason is, is because it's just gotten to be too bureaucratic, especially when you're trying to do things in a period of time where it doesn't really fit the narrative of the politics inside the organization. And so families have quietly revolted, and so you're starting to see what I saw, what I talked about before. These cabals of wealth that are coming together to invest alongside like-minded people, top of the game, into things that. Uh, fits their impact statement and the difference between an established operating family and an emerging family is that there isn't an impact statement, right? They haven't evolved yet. So this is, you know, it, it depends, not all families are the same, not all, you know, shoes are the same, not all cars are the same. So everybody has a different driver. Everybody has different identities that they need to satisfy. And so you need to make sure that you're actually fitting the identity of the, of the family office. If it's a real estate family office, and they've been doing that for four generations showing them something that's a hot crypto ico is probably not going to be a good fit right tom
1: not going to be a good fit. tell me about the uh family offices with regards to the um size how big can they be
2: we've how seen small, how small
1: and how big give us an idea of you know if i were to walk into one well, how i already, could i yeah i
2: mean yeah i mean I, every today a lot of that is handled virtually so you'll probably see about four or five maybe at most in probably the most single integrated family office I know, probably at most maybe about 20 people in, in, in these offices. They're not really big. A lot of this has been, you know, offshore. A lot of it has been. A lot of the um, administrative and operational part has been um, sort of managed with third parties. But everything that's happening inside is usually done in the offices and what we call the front end offices. And that's where a lot of the deal making goes. But in order to get there, you gotta have relationships, right? Because otherwise everybody else would be chasing these people. And it's very difficult to get the attention of someone, you know, if you're just coming to them looking for money first.
1: I would imagine they're being stalked by a lot of people.
2: A lot of seagulls, Tom, a lot of seagulls.
1: (laughs) And uh, you, 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 in your book, uh, mentioned you call them the decimals. Uh, I, I guess these are the super wealthy. T- tell us who these so, people, yeah. tell us the difference between wealthy and super wealthy.
2: Yeah, let me bookend this for you. Um, well, I'll start where I think there's a little bit of, <laughs> where a lot of media people have had a little bit of an issue with it. But middle class ends at $10 million. We'll just keep it at that. With inflation and everything that's going on today. Everybody else is fully levered. A lot of that, until you surpass ten million dollars, then your identity starts to evolve a little bit. Things start to change. But for the purpose of this book, the one thousandth of the one percent is for the people who have one hundred million. So we're going to bookend it there, and then it's—I mean, how much is Melinda Gates worth, right? I mean, that you know, this is she set up endowments. I think the most impressive part about someone who set up a family office very quickly was Jeff Bezos' ex-wife. I can't remember her name. But she actually wrote that it was not easy to set it up and to be able to allocate and give away and set up foundations in, in this period of time meaningfully. So but they go they can go as go, far-
1: we're gonna have to. We have to cut there and go to break. We're going to come back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Salvatore Bushimi, family office expert and founder of Dandry Partners, which is a private family office investment firm. The Mentors is now in its fifth year. Make sure you don't miss future shows. Subscribe at our website, thementorsradio.com. That's thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Loy, and you're listening to the Mentors Radio Show.
3: Hi, I'm the executive producer of the Mentors Radio Show. Usually I'm behind the scenes, but I want to tell you about something special. The demands of business, not to mention important time with family and friends, make steady energy so important. With more than one million fans, one million fans, I'm not alone in recommending Bulletproof. Go to feelgreat.vip. That's VIP, like very special person. feelgreat.vip to learn more.
4: Better life, better business. Hi, I'm Christoph Naur. I'm a certified business and life coach, helping business owners increase productivity, profits, and improve personal life. I'm the founder of Balance Six, money, health, relationship, time management, self-improvement, and higher power. I coach business owners to work smarter, not longer, to have time for better personal life. I hold you accountable for making time available to Balance Six, to nurture yourself and your relationships, and making more money with less stress. Get off the hamster wheel, and I will show you the secrets to real success. In case you're wondering about my accent, I came from Switzerland more than 30 years ago, but I assure you, my coaching will be in excellent English. Visit our website at balance6.biz. That's balance6.biz.
0: And now, Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Moore, and I'm with Family Office Investment Export. Salvatore Buscemi. We're talking about the emergence of the super wealthy and the financing of young companies. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast and iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time subscribe at the mentors radio.com so you bookended the uh wealthy the 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 whole continuum i appreciate that
2: super wealthy yes the
1: super wealthy and a family so why if i were really wealthy you have wealth managers too i know a lot of these big banks have wealth how do they differ from uh, a wealth manager and a family office when do they make that shift
2: when they hit that 100 million mark and they start to look at what does their legacy look like, they start to take things into their own hands. And that's when you start to see at a very far example, the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezos, the Bill Gates, no matter how you know nefarious you think he is, but he's all branded away to do something to make an impact. And that's really the stamp on legitimacy is for what you're going to be remembered for. How big is your obituary going to be? How long is it going to be? And what you know, what kind of impact will you've made to humanity? I think today, in a, in a post-pandemic world, people are a little more conscious and self-self conscious as far as not necessarily there's because there's been so much wealth that's been created in such a short period of time. I think people are looking for what else is there besides the materialism? What what else is there? How else can I affect humanity in a way where my grandkids will be talking about this for the next few generations?
1: Now, in your book, you talk about categorizing uh, family offices or the individuals in the family office with regards to types. Could you talk a little bit about the five, I believe it's five types that you have?
2: Yeah, there's five types. So I think, you know, if you were to look at the financial memes that are going on today, everybody, you know, links back to either Elon Musk or Warren Buffett. You have to remember Warren Buffett had advantages in the 60s when he was getting started, and he also had a tremendous amount of PR. And he's not necessarily the, you know, the nice, you know, gentle old man in business that everybody thinks he is drinking Diet Cokes and eating cheeseburgers. So in, in in our industry, I think that there was a lot of people, there was no leadership as far as how to approach these families. And people wanted to know why I was more successful than the others. And it really comes down to personality types and understanding what the identity is of the person who is who is actually writing the check and understanding that. I think a lot of wealth managers come in and it's like, if you don't want to do anything and you don't you know, you just want to be Tommy boy and you don't want to improve anything. Fine. You can stick your money, you know, with with a top tier asset manager. There's a lot of them out there that will do that. But for people who are really looking to build a legacy or do something different, this comes into play in an entirely different shape and form as to what it is. Not everybody's looking to get rich quick. Not everybody's looking to solve for that. That's mostly a middle-class convention. What these people are looking to solve for are discussed in the five types of avatars and I break it out. Number one is the mogul. He's the guy who is going to be the trendsetter. He's going to be the, um, the you know, the, the, the Jeff Bezos, if you will, the person who is the wealth creator for the family. No matter what that looks like, small or big, that's just a great example of it, considering where he's from. That's one part point of it. So he's going to be the guy who's going to take much more risk. Then you have the provider and the providers look more like accountants, you know they wear different clothes and everyone they're easily embarrassed and they like real estate they don't want to go on a high risk what they perceive to be bio you know biotech or life sciences as a corollary to that because they just don't understand it and they their pride and their dignity is based on being able to provide for certain things whether it's a, a foundation that they have or whether it's their own family or their own initiatives And then you have the other people who are a little more artsy fartsy, we call them the curator too. And, you know, they have different uh, identities and egos that need to um, be attended to. And then we have what we call the documentarian. And uh, the last one that I can't remember offhand, which was a great Oh, the nonconformist and Bill Gates is a perfect example of the nonconformist because Maybe you know this, but may, maybe your listeners don't. His father started probably one of the most globally recognized prestigious law firms in, in the world called K&L Gates, and Bill Gates went a different direction.
1: Oh, and, and out here uh, in California, we've got the Getty family. And where I grew up, there's the Pritzker family. And uh, I know that there was a lot of turmoil in that, what, the second generation or third generation where you had a mixture of these avatars, and everyone wanted to go off in a different direction. Uh, which I, th- I believe led to the liquidation of some of their money, but uh, to give people a chance to do what they wanted to do. Yeah,
2: yep. that's true, because, because you never have one size fits all. It's, you know, you have the nonconformist who doesn't necessarily want to be in an office all day looking at spreadsheets, working with guys like me. They'd rather be digging wells in Africa, and that's fine. But sometimes, you know, that differs than the family's expectations for that legacy, which causes the friction.
1: You're listening to the Mentors Radio. This is Tom Lori. We are with Salvatore Buscemi, the author of Investing Legacy: How the One Thousandths of One Percent Invest. So earlier you talked about impact statements. How do you guide? I mean, let's talk a little bit about Andrew Partners. It sounds like you're a little bit of a bridge between the family office and investments. Is that a fair assessment,
2: or? It is. I mean, what we do is we just invest into privately held investments. We don't do anything with a ticker. So it's just um, things in certain industries that we're good at, real estate, one of them. But you know, a lot of these investments answer to other things besides a return. It allows certain families to get into certain asset classes, but they might not have been able to get into on their own because their networks really aren't that big. So one of the things that we provide to them is the ability to co-invest alongside other distinguished families where there's safety in numbers and more alignment of interest. And this allows them at their discretion to make their investments. It's not a fund.
1: And then do you source deals or do you have people coming to you with deals to take to these family offices or how does all that work?
2: yeah, that's a good question. So usually the deals we see come from other family offices that are asking for us for due diligence or looking for us for like another eye on it. And that's something that they're looking into and they're putting into it. So now all of a sudden what happens is we start creating the investment, if you will. And you could say that a, an opportunity in Boston to be able to build life sciences, office real estate, commercial real estate, that is the crown jewel. Well, now you have a family office that's looking to lead it and they're looking to sort of alleviate the risks that so they'll find other people like us to co-invest alongside them, whether providing equity or debt, What we do is we provide um you know the appropriate financing if you will for uh, each individual opportunity as it's presented to us but they come in from people who we trust tom and people who i've worked with over the past 20 years and my partners who are also who you've talked to in the past and i know you know but these are people who are best in class and so when it comes to sourcing it's not really an issue at this point it's just the timing is really what's relevant here
1: it sounds like for an entrepreneur if you went through the list of the five avatars It would be very important for an entrepreneur that wants to secure money from a family office, they figure out where they really fit in those categories before they go out and knock doors or they're just wasting a lot of time. Is that, I mean, that's how I'm hearing what you're having to say, do your homework and figure out where, just like a venture fund, if they're investing in high tech, you don't bring about tech to them.
2: No, if they're allergic to shellfish, you don't bring them to an oyster bar, right? I mean, it's the same thing. It's just people think that just, it's almost obnoxious what people people expect from wealthy people today. (laughs) It's almost like treating them like ATMs. I know someone that owns a lot of real estate. The last thing I'd ever show him is anything that's life sciences because he doesn't get it. And then he'll think that I'm, you know, dense. So you have to make sure that you, you know, that you're respectful of what people's needs and wants are. And where the industry goes wrong is the, you know, sledgehammer one approach is this is big, this is hot. You're going to make a thousand percent return and everybody's going to apply into it. But the wealthy don't think about it that way because they're not worried so much per se about losing money. It's about losing their reputation, Tom, getting involved with the wrong people.
1: And then uh, so now I would go to you. Well, I guess uh, I'm just thinking about from an entrepreneur's point of view. So they really have to do their homework, not knock on a lot of doors. How would you suggest, and I think we're going to go to break here in just a second, so maybe we ought to do that first and we'll come back. And sure. Then the question I'm okay. going to have for you when we come back is how should an entrepreneur put their toe in the water with regards to securing money from a family office? And we'll go sure. back and talk yes. about that. Uh, this is... Tom Laurie, we're going to come back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Salvatore Buscemi, family office expert and founder of Dandrew Partners, which is a private family office investment firm. Remember, you can now listen to our Saturday broadcast live anywhere in the world on iHeartRadio by clicking on San Francisco's KTRB, 860 AM, The Answer. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show.
0: And now, back to the mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and I'm with family office investment expert, Salvatore Ushimi. He is sharing with us the investing secrets of the super wealthy. Okay, so we've. How did the family, did family offices invest in Theranos? <laughs> what, was, what was the slip up there? You know the diagnostics to be, to term be, out
2: here the- to be honest with you, Tom. I'm not sure that a lot of families invested in that one. I think that was more institutions. I could be wrong on it, but I guess the post mortem's is being performed right now in all the forensics, so we'll find out.
1: Well, they had the Walton family, Murdoch, DeVos, Cox, Carlos Slim,
2: yeah. so there were, yeah, I mean. It- there were a lot of names, I'm sure, in there. It's, just, it's not something I paid attention to, but how that got through, we don't know. I have no idea or no understanding, but that was pretty slick. But you know what I found out in hindsight is who her father is.
1: He's out there somewhere, right?
2: Noel no, I think he was part of Enron. So oh. this sort of magic runs in the family. I think he was the COO. I'm not too sure.
1: And and actually working with a family office and the way you work that per, that protects them in many ways because you've got a lot of experience in vetting all of these things and you're doing due diligence
2: sure. so. Sure, but you know what? It's it, it due diligence that's done is done a little more passionately because it's being sort of crowdsourced. So it comes around, and remember, when you're passing a hat around to ask someone for a check, they're going to do their due diligence too. So. We just pass around our due diligence. We tell them what we like about it. You know, we we are very transparent because we've worked with these people before and we know what it is. So not only are they trusting us, but we're trusting them too as well. They're putting in their hard what we call the hard money to be able to take care of these expenses for, you know, doing their own due diligence. That comes out of an expense of running a family office each year. That is something that they do spend a lot of money on because of reasons I said before, they care more about their reputation, you know, Toronto's being a great example of this, but um, you know, then, than losing the actual cash and con, you know, conversely, if you were to look at this and I were to show a deal to someone who was middle-class, the first thing they would do is they would show it to their, um, financial advisor friend somewhere at, you know, Raymond James, they wouldn't know what to do. They wouldn't know how to qualify it only because that guy doesn't want to put enough money into the due diligence to have to sink into it as a lost cause. So he'd rather not do the deal. Or if he does the deal, he doesn't really understand the risk profile. So there's a huge difference between how these family offices work and say, if you're showing this to someone who is a doctor or a dentist.
1: So for my audience, just real quickly, what is due diligence? And what what is that? What do you do when you do due diligence?
2: Due diligence is um, what I call structuring away the risk. And the risk is what is your friends and family going to make fun of you for if the deal goes wrong? So you have to uncover everything. And to me, we we roll it back before we even get to the numbers. I want to know who the operator is, regardless if it's private equity, venture capital, or real estate. I want to know that these guys have done it before and they have a strong balance sheet. So you have to trust but verify. And so that's usually with audited financials and real estate. Um, there's also what we call you know the equity component to it. How much down payment are they putting into it? And the experience, especially for real estate because a lot of these families are investing a lot of money. So they want to see that there's longevity here. And I like to work with operators who have been through at least two credit cycles. So that means 2008, we haven't been through this one yet, uh and you know the early 2000s so that's sort of you structure the risk away from that standpoint when you start with a pre-flight checklist where you have to make sure that everything hits this first before you even start digging into the numbers and at that point that's when you're ready to start talking about due diligence and doing background searches on the ceos to see if they've done you know if they've been a plaintiff against creditors or anything you want to you really want to figure out what it is but most importantly not anything nefarious that they've done before what kind of successes have they had? What's their track record? How many times have they exited? That's really what matters. And that's part of the due diligence process too, that a lot of people don't look at because they follow, they, they really fall in love with the product. And they tend to look the other way as it relates to maybe lack of experience or being weak operators or entrepreneurs, hoping for the best, but we don't look at the world that way.
1: You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. This is Tom Laurie. We're with Salvatore Ushimi, the author of Investing Legacy, how the one- One hundred thousands invest. Maybe there's an easier way to say that, rather than the zero zero one percent. I don't know. (laughs) Anyways, it's It's a great book. It's a great book. Great book. I recommend it for everybody to learn about family offices. So I'm going to go back a little bit to the beginning. You talked about impact statements, and I know you work with family offices, and that's a something you really push them hard on. Is what is their impact
2: statement, right? Yeah, exactly. Because. if you don't know what they want, you can't help them. Right. And the conversation, Tom usually goes like this and it's a cliche example, but usually there's an exit and you know, Kevin wants to go out and he wants to buy his fifth Porsche or his fifth exotic sports car. But the female in the relationship wants to um, start preserving and start building a legacy. And they have a different idea of what that looks like. And sometimes that causes divorce but what I want to know is what are they, you know, if it, you can't sell one thing, to two different personalities. So what we want to know is what, what is the epitaph going to look like when you die? And then when you think about it that way, then you think about what is more meaningful, right? And then it, it sort of, it's, it, it, it comes to the point is yes, there's a lot of means here, but what is it going to mean for us? How are we going to be able to leave an impact for leaving the world a better place? And that is an individual thing to many people just like their own identity or anything else in life.
1: Let's switch gears a little bit and have you talk a little bit about Dan Drew Partners and how it was formed, when it's formed. I know you've been doing this sure. for 20 years, so you're really deep into this. So tell us a little bit about the, the firm.
2: Yeah, the firm was founded in the Upper East Side apartment complex uh, on East 85th Street in 2001. And this was after the dot-com bubble and there was um, a lot of opportunity out there and I was thinking at the point of whether or not I should have went to business school uh, after leaving Goldman Sachs or if I should just continue on and do something entrepreneurial. And after about a year of following the names of people who are in the book uh, that, that uh, helped me formulate my professional path, I decided it would be best to go the entrepreneurial path. And um, we, you know, at the beginning, we were doing smaller deals. At 29, I raised $30 million from an institution on Madison Avenue. Um, that sort of brought us into our own. And you know, we've had partners come in and out and we've had great opportunities. And then in 2013, the real estate market got a little hot and I got um, sort of outbid on something and I had a crisis of conscience. And a lot of the people who were the families who were investing with us uh, or, or into me into real estate were actually life sciences families. And so it, I, after a conversation, I turned my focus on them in 2013, and we started allocating into with these real estate families back into some of these um, families that had invested into us who were very established operators and entrepreneurs in their in their own right. A few years later, we started Danji Partners on Core Ventures, which has been very, very successful because it has a lot of life sciences uh, companies that we got into before the pandemic. So, of course, the pandemic only provided much of a tailwind. And right now, what we do is just direct investments, into um, real estate and what we call statement class assets. That could be class A real estate office. I talked about Boston before, that'll be a class A life sciences, commercial real estate project. And also any companies that have a strong lead investor who's a distinguished family in the field who might be able to add a tremendous amount of what we call intellectual capital, reputational capital. So in a nutshell, that's what we've been able to accomplish over the past 20 years. And it's been a lot of success because we've made it Um, communal. If it wasn't for my investors, I wouldn't be where I am today.
1: And what are some of the unspoken rules of uh, what you do?
2: Uh, That's a good question. Um, Never talk business or ask for a check on the first meeting. Okay. I mean, I I mean, how would you treat someone, you know, an attractive woman at the bar? Would you go up to them and and say, let's go home or, you know, are you looking to build a relationship? And I think a lot of people don't build a relationship first and they come off as being very, uh, lacking genuineness and that is a big issue the other thing too is people who go around saying and this is what i starting to see in the industry these days and this is one of the reasons why i write the book is because some smaller institutions in the form of broker dealers have come into the business looking to aggregate assets from families by selling things saying they're a family office and they're really not and so when you're not being able to show an alignment of interest that's the problem
1: okay we're gonna come back in a few minutes with our guest Montreal Salvatore. Cosmetic Family Office Expert. This is Tom Loy and this is The Mentor's Radio Show.
7: Hey professional business women, I know how busy your life is to look your best. Nails matter. The good news is I can save you a lot of nasty chemical smelling nail salon time. Just imagine, a perfect manicure in just minutes at home, even while watching TV. No dry time, no smudges, no streaks and your new manicure will last up to 10 days, often longer. I'm talking about 100% real nail polish. Yes, real nail polish, including top and base coat, all in one, that can gently be stretched for a perfect custom fit. Gorgeous, vibrant colors, soft pastels, gentle glitter, or can't-miss designs and nail art. You have options. For about $12 a set, you can even get some free. Choose your colors or designs. Receive them in about three days. Done. Everything you need is included. Polish easily removes and does not damage nails. Check it out. Nails4me.com. Nails, the number four, M E.com. That's Nails4me.com.
3: Hi, I'm the executive producer of the Mentors Radio Show. Usually I'm behind the scenes, but I want to tell you about something special. If you're an entrepreneur like me, you need steady energy and focus. Here's my secret. The demands of business, not to mention important time with family and friends, make steady energy so important. With more than one million fans, one million fans, I'm not alone in recommending Bulletproof. Go to feelgreat.vip. That's V-I-P, like very special person. feelgreat.vip to learn more.
0: And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with family office investment expert, Salvatore Bushimi. He is sharing with us the investing secrets of the super wealthy. Let's turn our attention to you. How did you get involved in all of this? I mean, you talked a little bit about what you did in 2001. You were at Goldman Sachs. Tell us about your family, your mom, your dad, your siblings. What was the environment?
2: Oh, we, you know, it's a very, uh, it's a very nice story, but it's a tragic story. So I'll start with it. I'm um, one of, um, I'm the last one remaining in my nuclear family. I lost my father at 24 when I was working on Wall Street. Um, and that, yeah, I had to grow up a little bit from there, but I always made a promise to myself because he died of a heart attack young at the age of 56 so that I would say be a little more ambitious. And then things transpired and through all the successes and everything. Personally, um, my mother was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer in 2013. And because we had a very tight family, um, that actually tore us apart. My brother never really got over losing my father so suddenly because we had a tight family. We're from Eastern Long Island. And, you know, we both went to school in New York City, my brother and I. So we would always meet our family. We would always have family dinners. And then we'd go out to our respective friends on Saturday nights. And my father in December, Two weeks before Christmas, never woke up from a nap and, and had a stroke, uh, and you know the rest of his history. So when my mom was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, my brother really took it upon himself to care for my mom. He was scared. Unfortunately, in 2015, he passed away suddenly um, as a result of um, of basically intoxication because of um, he suffocated himself into a sofa. He had a .44 BAC uh, at autopsy. So. And then after that, I sort of made a promise to myself, I would do something else. And then we went into, you know, other things in in business. So I've used every tragedy sort of as a, as a sort of a lever to move into something a little further beyond my comfort zone. And, you know, my mom passed away, we just started a new family office with new partners that has been going very well. Um, and she passed a year ago. So it, it, no kids. And, you know, it's just the way the world is right now. But um, I went to a private Catholic school in Long Island, and I went to Fordham in New York City, and I thought I wanted to be a doctor, um, and I didn't. And um, in my heart, my senior year came to an epiphany that I was just going through the motions, just getting the grades so I could graduate. And senior year was very long for me. I was also a rower in college. I wasn't really necessarily a good one, but you know I enjoyed it. You know I liked um, participating in it. So college was a you know, very deep experience for me. But the people who I was working for saw that, and it was the brother of the surgeon who I interned for who said, in so many words, and explained in the book, hey, you should meet my brother, Um, medicine, you know, you passed out looking at a tibula, (laughs) this might not be for you. I get it. I understand you're a hard worker, but that hard work is going to transcribe somewhere else and let me help you. And that's how I wound up at Goldman Sachs.
1: And who were your important mentors and sponsors
2: along the way? You know, one of the guys, um, it's interesting, I mentioned some of them in the book, but there's one gentleman who is older, a little crankier, and I didn't know who he was, but before I would go to work, there was a, um, there still is, there's a New York Health and Racquet Club down on Whitehall Street, and, and that's in New York City down on, down on Wall Street. And the gentleman there, his name is Bill Johnson. And Bill Johnson is someone who I would always talk to at five in the morning before I knew who he was. That's before I saw him when he brought Martha Stewart public and he was holding uh, a tray full of clear glasses, full of orange juice. And then I found out that he was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. We still keep in touch to this day, but he really, um, sort of focused me on several things in my career as far as the entrepreneurship and and you know i really owe a tremendous amount of gratitude to him because he was able to make introductions where i was able to get a lot further along because of the fact that he recognized in me that you know maybe you know this is maybe a path that he sees me taking and maybe um maybe a sign of maybe things changing very quickly and it's better to be on your own sooner rather than later
1: And of all the transactions you've done, what is the most memorable one that gave you the greatest satisfaction?
2: Hmm. We're coming into that right now. I think, you know, I could talk about a real estate deal and that would be kind of boring. And that's not really, that's something interesting. But I will tell you something is in this industry, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of Meetings and, and and people are very very friendly and I just remember meeting one of my partners bringing a CEO to my office here in Las Vegas, which is uh, where I've been for the past thirteen years because we own real estate mm-hmm. out here and um, and I th- we made an investment in a company called Immunicom and back in two thousand six two thousand sixteen it was right after the CEO was actually thinking about whether or not he should keep it or not. Turns out later on, we have a huge value inflection on that. But the most important part about it is that it is going to affect millions and millions of people, not necessarily when, you know beyond the outsized financial return, but to be able to make an impact in something like cancer therapy, to me, is something I'm very proud of. That's something a lot of people don't have the intestinal fortitude to do. A lot of people don't win in this business because they have weak networks or they don't understand it. But that's something just seeing that happen and occur in the news is something that's been very Very encouraging to me as far as us seeing things happen. And of course, in healthcare today, we've seen that uh, the FDA has turned basically the clock around and basically said, you can, you know, from 10 to 20 years of FDA testing and making sure everything's working. Now we have drugs that are being, as we've seen in the coronavirus, approved within, uh, you know, six months. So the world is changing and I'm proud to be a part of that.
1: And do you think you found your purpose in life?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think after, you know, I think after you write three epitaphs for your family, you come and find that out very quickly.
1: And what is it that you would point to that really got you through the tough times?
2: I really want to make an impact in cancer therapy. That's really what I want to do, because cancer really, I wouldn't say ruined my family, but it did. Um, And it's something that, you know, a lot of people um, have different ways of, of reflecting on pain or anger. I like to be a little more resourceful and I've spent a lot of time over the past eight years, essentially, um, putting together something where I could work with other families to be able to make a huge impact on a part of society that really needs it the most.
1: What is it? You may seem like a pretty upbeat guy. What is it that really puts a smile on your face?
2: I think that you start to see humanity coming together for the first time. You know, the, the pandemic was encouraging to me. That's a good question. Because for the first time you've had in the history of the world, you've had the world's smartest brains come together to come together for a cure for something. That is something we've never seen before. And it's only going to happen faster and faster. So the more you have that type of commonality and in, in, in people sharing, you know, what they've discovered, information, data, I, that is very encouraging to me. Um, I don't know how else to put it. When you have a cure for a worldwide deadly pandemic that has been created in six months. That's pretty encouraging to me.
1: We're gonna leave a few more seconds to our next segment and we're gonna take a break here. We're gonna come back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Salvatore Buscemi, family office expert and the founder of Dan Drew Partners, which is a private family office investment firm. You'll find all of our past shows, show notes, and links at our website, thementorsradio.com. That is thementorsradio.com. This is Tom Lory and this is The Mentors Radio. Better life, better business.
4: Hi, I'm Christoph Naur. I'm a certified business and life coach, helping business owners increase productivity, profits, and improve personal life. I'm the founder of Balance Six, money, health, relationship, time management, self-improvement, and higher power. I coach business owners to work smarter, not longer, to have time for better personal life. I hold you accountable for making time available to Balance 6, to nurture yourself and your relationships, and making more money with less stress. Get off the hamster wheel and I will show you the secrets to real success. In case you're wondering about my accent, I came from Switzerland more than 30 years ago, but I assure you my coaching will be in excellent English. Visit our website at Balance6.biz, that's Balance6.biz.
0: And now, back to the mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Welcome back. This is Tom Roy, and I'm with family office investment expert Salvatore Buscemi. We're talking about the emergence of the super wealthy and the financing of young companies. Continue on. Talk a little bit about you. Uh, What is it that's on your mind today?
2: Preoccupies me today. I'll be frank with you. Is inflation and all the things that are happening in American society so quickly that nobody's re- really understanding why it's happening. I think people are starting to question things that they never really thought about, like where does inflation come from? You know, is it, does it grow on trees? Remember we're, we're, we're in a society today that really doesn't pay attention. They never been in a down market, so they never really had to pay attention to their check balances or the checkbook balances. So I'm kind of worried to see where this all goes. For us, it, you know, we're, we're investments. It doesn't really matter if, if there is inflation or not, we're, we'll benefit anyway, but I think it's going to really destroy the middle-class. And if you destroy the middle-class in this country, then you really have nothing left. And that's something that I don't really feel too good about.
1: Well, and I'm old enough where I went through it back in the seventies and it was, uh, and I was a young guy starting my career, but when you go out and get a mortgage and it's 13%, I'll tell you, people don't realize what inflation can do to the budget. And, uh, and when, you, you know, I we could probably talk about that for a long time, and I, I'm sure you have a leadership style. What How would you tell how would you characterize your leadership style?
2: You know, it, it's funny. I've established myself in this business by being a leader by example. And whether that's writing a book or writing a check for a company no, when nobody else wanted to first, that's always the way that I've led is by example and through actions. And that it really, in, in the higher circles, that shows conviction, that also shows an alignment of interest. And it also makes people more, it also makes you a little more prominent in front of the eyes of people because they take you seriously.
1: And you mentioned earlier that uh, you like to get, you've been had a habit of getting into what I call areas of discomfort. And I'd call those areas of uncertainty. And that's the world we live in. How how do you embrace that on a day-to-day basis? How do you deal yeah, with it? I mean, How do you per- manage it? How do you navigate it?
2: You know, I, I don't know. Because I've had to deal with so much for, you know, pretty much all my 40s has been putting out fires, as I told you, with my brother my mom moving with her and everything. But I've always kept with something that I've always done, and that's working out in the mornings. And, and you know, I go back to college. I love, you know, waking up early and, and, and going to practice. I carried that through, uh, still today. And I think that's important is to carry with you the time alone to just start the day. It's something that to me, I like to do where I can just focus on one thing and I don't have to worry about too much, but you know, when you're in this business, you have to, you can't, you have to avoid alcohol. You, you know, you can't really be, um, you have to be on call a lot. And I think a lot of people don't like that is, you know, when, when things are are happening, you need to be able to be responsive and on top of it. And you're always like, if you think about it, you're sort of like the wolf, right? You're like Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. That's really what it is. And you always have to be on alert because something might need attention or somebody might need uh, some of your attention, most importantly. And that's really what it comes down to is being sure to balance those relationships, not too many relationships in a way where they're meaningful. And it really doesn't add too much stress to your life. I know too many people who overcommit to themselves because they can't say no. I'm a New Yorker. I can say no very easily. And when you start saying no to things that you know you can't help people with, your life gets exponentially easier. And to the people out there who are aspiring, um, saying no actually will give you a little more um, credibility with a lot of these emerging families.
1: And... In closing, what is it that you found with all these different people you've met and obviously the super wealthy, the wealthy regular people on the street throughout your life, I'm sure there are certain people that have really impressed you that have learned to navigate life and have peace. What is it about these people that you found that gives them that sense of peace and joy in terms of what
2: they're doing? You know what it comes down to? This is a great question. Is that they always make themselves of service to others. That's where they find the real joy and that is something that um in this business people do not appreciate egos and when you bury your ego and you actually spill real relationships that's where the real magic happens
1: well that's going to be it till next week we've been talking to salvatore buscini family office expert and founder of dandrew partners we've been talking about how the super rich the one one thousandths manage and invest their wealth we will be posting a link to salvatore's books including his latest release investing legacy how the one 1,000th one invests. And it'll be on our website, thementorsradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe to future shows. Again, it's thementorsradio.com. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of the Mentors Radio Show. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and keep a candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness.
0: It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.